Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash T-H-E-O. That's M-I-N-T-M-O-B-I-L-E dot com slash Theo. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month. Sounds manageable to me at mintmobile.com slash Theo. You know, it's an it's a unique time um, where there's so much uh, information and false information and rumor and um, biased uh, material going around uh, about the U.S. border. And um, and I'm sure we've all heard things and tried not to hear things about it. Um, and so I wanted to get someone here today who is boots on the ground, been there, you know, that frontline bad boy. And uh, I'm so happy uh, today to uh, have fresh off of his 32 years of service working with the U.S. Border Patrol, where he finished as the chief border patrol agent of the Tucson sector. Um, we are happy to have him today, Mr. Roy Villarreal. Oh, yeah, Burt Kreischer. Oh, man, I love that guy. He yeah, he's so funny. Dude, he is an animal. <laughs> or the machine, they call him. He's machine, everything, yeah. yeah. He's uh, he, he's like, and he laughs all the time. Every time he's, he's he reminds me of like Winnie the Pooh, like if Winnie the Pooh went to college <laughs> and was like in a fraternity for a really long time. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Like just like, yeah, he's one of a kind, man. Um, so you live over in Tucson? Yeah. Nice man. I went to Santa Rita High School for uh, oh really for a semester. Yeah, <laughs> my mom used to live out on Pantano. Oh my gosh, yeah. So I used to be out there, and people would fight in the car washes and stuff like that after school. <laughs> so we didn't have any border control. We could have used some border control then, over right? there. Yeah, <laughs> we could have used some border control oh, out of funny. Santa Rita High School, man. Go Eagles. Um, so Roy Villarreal, that's how you say your last name. Nailed it. Yeah. So your position with the border, what was it exactly? So I recently retired from the Border Patrol, uh, mm -hmm. served for 32 years. My position at the time was uh, the chief patrol agent of the Tucson sector. Okay. And that sector is about how big? Uh, 260 miles of border with uh, Arizona border with Mexico. Okay. And so when you're in charge of that, are you in charge of both sides of it or just one side? Just the one side. So don't we have uh, control over the U.S. side? Do they have, do you know the person who's in charge of the other side? Like, is there someone in charge of the other side? Well, yes, to a degree. Uh, dealing with the, the Mexican government, you're dealing with different entities, uh, their customs, their immigration, uh, federal police, local police. There's a whole myriad of entities you have to deal with in Mexico. Okay. Um, so like on a day-to-day -day basis, kind of what were some of like your kind of responsibilities? Like what are you guys' responsibilities over there? So Tucson sectors is the largest sector in the Border Patrol. And so I had about 4,000 employees under my purview. Wow. Um, and that uh, was about 3,400 sworn law enforcement officers, and then the rest were administrative folks, mechanics, um, technicians, intel analysts, radio operators, you name it, there's a full gambit behind it. The day-to-day -day operations, um, <clears throat> in the height 
of uh, operations there in Tucson, we were arresting about 500 to 1,000 people a day. And that that includes, um, you know, like looking at the news right now, you're dealing with unaccompanied children, mm-hmm. uh, families. And then that's about 30, maybe 40% of the work of the, the workload right now. Right. And then the rest are all single adults, criminal aliens. Uh, you, you've got everything from pedophiles, rapists, narcotic traffickers. Heading uh, in. Coming in, yeah. Wow. So is it, uh, and so, man, there's just, so, it's so much, it's like such a, um, it's just a lot. It seems, it just seems like a lot. Is it, um, or so someone comes into the country, right? Someone's coming in illegally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that just because that's the, you know, these are the, the, the there's a lot where you have to have some rules and, and the rules are if somebody's in a place they're not supposed to be, then we're just going to use the term illegally. So, uh, is that okay with you? Absolutely. Okay. That's, I mean, that's, and that's the appropriate legal definition. You've entered the country illegally. Right. Yeah. Like if I went somewhere, they would say that to me. If I went to a country where I wasn't, or I wasn't like, didn't have the paperwork done to be in, then they would say you're here illegally. Um, so if someone comes across and you guys apprehend them, is it apprehend? Like, what do you guys do? You guys take them in, you guys take them into a facility. Do you immediately like take them back across the border? Like what kind of happens? So what's interesting about uh, border enforcement is, is um, I think what happens with middle America is there's, there's a perception. And I don't know if you've been down to the border or mm-hmm. what you take on the border is, but I think a lot of America looks at the border um, through the eyes of what they've seen on the news. You, know, you look at San Diego, you look at El Paso, and they show an urbanized border. You got cities on both sides and fencing and demarcation. A lot of what the Border Patrol deals with is everything in between out in the middle of nowhere, rugged mountains, desert. Uh, it just, there is, uh, I've worked in places where there's next to nothing out there in regards to infrastructure. It's just you and your closest backup is 10 or 20 miles away and you're in the middle of nowhere. Wow. Um, and so we employ... And I have to get away from the Wii because now I'm retired. But the Border yeah. Patrol employs a whole myriad of, of tools, um, infrared uh, cameras, mm-hmm. ground sensors. Um, we've got one of the largest air fleets in, in the U.S. government in the law enforcement uh, realm. Uh, so you've got Blackhawks, uh, an assortment of helicopters, unmanned aerial vehicles. And so, I mean, you're using all these different assets to track so many hopefully to prevent, but to track them once they enter the country. So if you see someone, say, say, say someone's out on patrol, right, on an actual patrol, and then they see someone crossing into the country, um, do they, like, tag them or, like, do they, what do you do? Like, do you apprehend them? Is it, I mean, I would, it almost has a, like a freeze tag type of vibe, <laughs> I feel like, at a certain point. It, it, it is. It's almost like a game of cat and mouse, you know, right. um, so I'll give you two scenarios. Okay. In an urbanized area where we've got, uh, you've got fencing. Or and that's like re- El Paso, you're saying. Like El Paso. Mm-hmm. Um, even places like Douglas, Nogales, Arizona. Yeah. Um, San Diego, you've got fencing or a wall. Uh, you know, under the uh, Trump administration, it changed from fencing to wall. Right. Um, in those locations, we've got a lot of fixed cameras. Um, these are cameras that are up on, on uh, large poles. And so you've got agents that are monitoring and watching. And uh, some of the technology that plays into these cameras also detects, does change detection. So if it's watching the fence and all of a sudden there's a change in that picture, it'll mm-hmm. alert the operator who then will call the agents out in the field. And then that agent, he or she will respond to the area. Or maybe they're watching with binoculars and they see him crossing over the fence through a hole. So they'll respond and then they'll make the arrest. Um, it's apprehension, arrest. It, it's all the same thing. Okay. Um, and then the second scenario is, as I described, out in the middle of the nowhere, and that's more of the norm. You're out there, and what happens is you may have a ground sensor that goes off somewhere near the border, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> you learned 
you know, psychologically as human beings, you're looking for the easiest path of resistance. So you learn the psychology of where people are going to try to cross. Okay. And then you're also dealing with uh, one of the things that we can talk about this shortly is you're dealing with a criminal element that's very effective and uh, I'll use the term, they're professionals at what they do, smuggling people. Okay. And so they'll begin trekking north into the U.S. And what agents will do is they'll find a spot where they can make the arrest that's it's beneficial to them. Uh, and they'll track them. The sensors are lined up in such a manner that you, you can track the movement of a person or a group of people. Uh, you may use infrared scopes. You may call on uh, someone up in the air to, to track the, the group of people as they move along. And then you'll roll in and make that arrest. Uh, so, if there's a, so it sounds like there's a lot of capabilities to know when and where people are coming. So it sounds great, right? It right. sounds like all these tools, all these assets. Um, but until you're out there and you get a true idea of just how it, it really is a needle in a haystack because um, some of the areas that we work in, and I'll speak to Arizona, you have these arroyos and canyons um, and brush. And so you may have, I may have a camera, an infrared camera that's going to pan this way. And if the ground was flat and there was nothing to obstruct the view, easy. Right. But because someone can drop into a canyon, and these canyons can go for miles, or climb up into a mountain and hide in a cave, your window of opportunity for arrest is very short. So the agents, when, when I say they position themselves, they're finding an area where they have great technology coverage, and they know the ins and out of that area. So when they, they go to arrest these people, if they scatter and run, which happens quite often, they know where to work towards to, to bring them into custody. Wow. Yeah, it's got to get you out there yeah you uh, you would love it i've heard uh, yeah i've i've actually got offered we had tommy laring came on as a guest one time and she is like you know she's like real um she's big on the border on border control she, you know she's a favorite of the border patrol is she, she she's one of the, the first that went out to the border and invested herself and excuse me invested herself and got to know the border the border patrol and what's going on and, right uh, she's a strong advocate and a lot of the agents really really love her yeah 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 she's a strong yeah she's definitely a strong advocate she offered me to go sometimes so yeah i would love to go sometimes so i have an idea because i just see like n snippets here and there and it seems like um you know a lot of the border gets politicized a lot you know like you see a lot of uh like you you hear a lot of like oh caravans are coming or um children are being separated from their uh parents or their families like take me into some of that scenario so like if you apprehend a family then what happens so everyone who's apprehended uh and i'll walk you through from the point of apprehension to to getting into the station and in some cases criminally prosecuted or released or returned there's a couple scenarios as soon as that arrest is made, the agent, um, and what we have to recognize is that we're still dealing with a criminal element. Right. Um, so it, just like any law enforcement officer, uh, he or she goes through that whole procedure of pat down, checking bags and whatever else. And you're dealing with people from not only, well, I think most people think about uh, illegal immigrants as being from Mexico or Central America. And that's, that's the focus right now. Right. But the reality is, is we see people from everywhere throughout the world really syria somalia egypt russia you 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 excuse me ukraine you name it people from those countries are coming here um and and they're coming through the boat through the through the southern border yeah wow yeah. the uh and, and i often say this what, what gets lost on the public is border security is truly national security right we're dealing with cartels and this is a multi-billion dollar industry it's not a couple hundred dollars or a few million. It's billions of dollars that are generated in trafficking and smuggling of people and narcotics. Wow. 
the power and the leverage that these tra- these trafficking organizations have is tremendous. Um, you know, and we can talk about this in a little bit. But on the Mexican side, one of the things that we have to contend, contend with is corruption. Right. Uh, and when you have an organization, a criminal organization that's pulling in billions of dollars, you know, dropping five thousand or ten thousand dollars in the pockets of a, a Mexican official to look the other way is nothing. Yeah. Uh, so it, this multi-billion-dollar industry has a drive, has a need to keep that that uh, that money coming in. Yeah. So the agents are contending with, you've got unaccompanied children. And, and when we say this, I want to paint the picture. A lot of these unaccompanied children are young men between the ages of 15 and 17. Okay. I'd say about uh, probably half of them. And then the okay. rest are everything from a 12-year-old. Uh, one of the things I see frequently is you'll have an uh, eight or nine-year-old with a younger sibling who's about five or six and sometimes a two or three-year-old with them. And they're traveling thousands of miles by themselves to our border and then coming across. And it, it blows my mind. I've, I've got uh, uh, an eight-year-old. And I could imagine yeah. saying, here, here's, here's a phone number. When you get to the U.S., call this number and somebody's going to come and find you. I couldn't imagine sending my child out on this journey by himself. Oh, we had a four-year-old when I was growing up that, that wandered over to our house. Like from the neighbors, they used to do a bunch of drugs next door. And um, he, he knocked on the door. He said he was going to the Dollar General. He's like four years old. We're like... You're not going to the dollar. Like this kid's out of his mind. It's like two miles away. We're like yeah. this guy's, you know. So we sent him home, man. But so, but yeah, I can't even imagine like a kid going a really far distance out of. And it's hot over there. I mean, I lived in Tucson for a while, dude. It is, it's spicy. Oh yeah, it, it, and take it back. So if you're leaving from Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, you're traveling a couple thousand miles, two to four weeks. Think about a six-year-old or an eight-year-old doing this by himself, oh. or maybe with a group of other kids. What happens between the the moment they leave their house till they get to the border. I mean, and when you get to the border, you're right. There's the dangers of just the environment by itself, the Rio Grande, the desert, the heat. Well, the heat and the cold, it'll, it'll kill you either or. Yeah, it's a good point. Then you have people that will take advantage of these kids. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that just breaks my heart because I've seen this countless times, you get kids that are rented because one of the things that happens uh, is if you present as a family unit, here's Roy, mom, a couple kids, I'm going to get released. And so what we were seeing was kids being rented. Mm. You know? And and so you, you've got a, a parent back in Guatemala who rents their child for $1,500. And that's right. a tremendous amount of money in Guatemala. Yeah. And so the kid is brought to the border, put in with a pseudo family, sits in detention and then is released. And oh. then a, a handler, a smuggler, picks up this child, flies him back to Guatemala. Wow. That's, that's the best case scenario, right? Right. What happens with kids that just disappear? And we saw this happen. As soon as you identify that child, because it would take one or two, sometimes three times before the, the system would pick them up, uh, because not all children are fingerprinted. And once you've identified them and you, 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 know, you, you latch onto this group and you expose it, if you can control and get that child back into the hands of the parent, win. If you can't, if that child happens to get released with that family and then the smuggling organization realizes that the child is now blown, right? I don't know what happens to them. Yeah, it's like, is it worth them fly, get them a, getting them a plane ticket or a bus ticket back to Guatemala? Is it worth, or is it just cheaper for them, especially after they've already been doing a lot of dirty business, you know, uh, to just well, and this not is, care or get them into something else even worse? It's a business that doesn't care about the person. It's a, it's, it's a business that's driven by money. So whether it's trafficking, whether it's returning to the family, best case scenario, and or becoming an indentured servant, you know, working in some sort of industry, being sexually trafficked, all of those are realities of what we see at the border. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. I've met, I mean, I've, I myself have 
been involved with escorts and you know that sort of thing. We had a sex worker on here one time. I've met girls before um, that have been presented as escorts, and you can that I've just been like, oh, there's something is not right with this scenario. You know, this is yeah. not um, this is not somebody who's involved in this because they want to be involved in this. You know, that kind of stuff's kind of sad to see. Yeah. And it's interesting because we'll have such adamant like. People speaking so outspokenly about sex trafficking in America, but the same people it seems will be speaking about opening the borders up. And it's like, it just seems so, uh, I don't know. It's like, how do you know that the people coming across aren't like, yeah, it could be pretending that, that that's their daughter. You know, oh, yeah. or pretending that that's their mom. Like, you just don't really know the scenario, huh? No, and, and the thing about it, when I talk about these criminal organizations, each uh, trafficking organization, cartel owns a certain segment. They've got uh, um, <clears throat> cartel bosses that own plazas. They're plaza bosses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it could be five miles or 10 miles of an area. And so when you come up to the border, you're paying a tax in order to cross in that area. On that side? On Yeah, from, from the oh Mexican side to the U.S. Gosh. side. So, I mean, and when I talk about billion dollar industry so a mexican national mm -hmm. he or she is going to pay between the cheapest would be about 2500 all the way up to about five grand um central american five to ten grand an indian national uh, the tax they're paying on the no, mexican side well this is to get smuggled right oh and to then get when you smuggled get, so you get to the border this is part of your, your smuggling fee you're paying a total fee of let's say it's 10 10 grand right okay but then when i show up at the border this plaza boss says feel i know you paid roy to come across but you haven't paid my tax yet. So now you owe me 500 or $300, $800 to cross here. So you have to keep that money on you, on your person while you're going that distance. It's a little bit of both. You'll see folks that travel with money in their, in their hands, uh, in their pockets, hidden away. And then there's a lot of money that gets wired. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a huge industry, uh, money being wired into Mexico. So like, uh, I think it's either the number three or number five, but part of Mexico's GDP, their gross domestic, domestic product, one of the, the largest uh, GDP earners is remittances from the U.S. into Mexico. Wow. And it's the same thing in Central America where you've got folks that are sending money back. So they'll wire a smuggler, you know, here's the 300 bucks that I can cross in your plaza. Wow. It's, it's just, it's big bucks. But a, like an Indian national, it's going to pay twenty to $40,000. Chinese, about fifty grand. Um, someone who's uh, from a, um, a, uh, a country that, that may be on the, like, maybe perceived as being a terrorist country. Mm -hmm. Not that they're terrorists, but could be right. perceived as such. Easily 80 grand. And that's someone, what they're going to charge the, 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 the smuggling organization or the coyote is going to charge is going to charge. And, and the, the, the organization in and of itself is, is very disciplined in that you've got folks that they do the recruitment. Um, they're all over social media. So you can go onto Facebook and, and, uh, find, uh, sites that'll offer smuggling. And then, so you've got the recruiters, you've got the handlers on the Mexican side that, that uh, they house you and feed you until you're, you're being, until you're ready to be crossed. You've got the folks that will just get you across the border. And then you've got those that'll cross you once across the border into the U.S. And then you've got logistics teams that do the transport. So they, just all different. So depending on how much money you have is well, the type of treatment you can get along the way, kind of? Kind, kind of, sort of. I mean, you're going to pay a lump sum, but each segment, someone's getting paid, right? right? Um, the, the thing is... <clears throat> With each segment, as you're getting paid along, well, you're not, in other words, I'm, I'm paying you, you're the organizer, right? You're the smuggler. Right. I give you my 40 grand, and then that smuggler, as as the person's being moved along, pays Roy a portion. Okay, I see. Uh, somebody else a portion. So he's breaking everybody off. You kind of have the guy that's the bank. Yeah, yeah wow. exactly. Um, we had a question that came in from a young lady right here. Let's uh, pull that question back up, if you don't mind, Sean. 
And if you can hear birds, this is our new studio. So this is our first attempt in this new place here. Um, Gorgeous. Thank you. We got some, there's some robins nesting outside. Hey, Theo. Hey, Roy. I'm visiting the great free state of Texas from Michigan. And my question is, what is one thing that you'd want people to know about the border that the media won't tell you? Gang, gang. Gang, baby. So that's a good question. Yeah. What do you, what's something that, that people don't know? What's something we don't know as like a regular citizen? Yeah, unfortunately, there's so many things. But I mean, realistically, the the greatest thing that, that I think the public needs to understand is that it's not just about illegal migration. It's not just kids or families. It's the the greater threat that's posed by these criminal organizations. I mean, when you've got a multi-billion dollar organization that controls the border, that can move people commodities freely that's problematic yeah um it feels very problematic as like a someone who's just in a place like yeah it'd be scary if i left like a window open at night and i knew that people outside of the window had a very strong business and wanted things to come in my window oh absolutely and, and they're going to do whatever it takes to get it done wow um it, it, these aren't uh they're not doing it for altruistic you know good-natured purposes they're doing it for the mighty dollar do you have uh do you ever have compromised uh employees on your side yeah unfortunately it happens um <clears throat> the reality is again get it back to like the, it'd be hard to do so i'll give you two scenarios the reality is uh the money is there um and so people that are recruited in the border patrol and we've got people from all over the united states um, some, some of which, such as myself, who were born and raised near the border, so you, and you, you work in the border environment, you got folks that come from back east, uh, Michigan, places like that, that have never experienced the border. And they get down there, and it's just this culture shock. And uh, we, uh, in, in Border Patrol parlance, we, we used to call it a, a, a 10-4 scenario, mm-hmm. which is co- uh, police code for everything's okay, 10-4. But you call it a 10-4 because here I am, I'm a four walking into a bar and this 10 comes up and starts hitting on me. Mm. Well, what she's doing is she's working you to corrupt you. And so right. we've seen a couple circumstances where that's happened. So the reality is, is there corruption or can corruption happen? Yes. Right. But the it's easier in Mexico than it is in the U.S., uh, simply because of, of you know, the pay is different. It's also culturally accepted in Mexico. Um, one of the sayings down there is plumo o plata. Um, give me a, give me a silver or give me a bullet. So mm. silver being money. Right. And so, you know, Mexico has been changing, working towards getting away from corruption, but it's still a reality of, of the environment down there. Yeah. Um, wow. It, it, and so we've also had a real dark force over there. You're not really uh, just up against the people that are coming across. Uh, you're up against the possibility of those people, um, not just being like people fleeing for a better life. You're up against the possibility of those people being criminals. Um, and then you're up against the, 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 both of those being fortified and supported by, by billions of dollars, by, by a really a strong running business. By dirty money. But yes, right. absolutely. Wow. Yeah. You know, the other aspect too is we've had uh, cartels pay people to join the border, clean record, get them to join the border patrol and then, and then use them for information, um, uh, enforcement routes and stuff like that to, mm. to pass goods. So it's, it's an everyday threat. It really is. So uh, what about like, so Trump had a plan to build the wall, right? So that was like a thing uh, that was really big that he spoke a lot about. Did they start building the wall? Do you feel like the wall was gonna be effective? So uh, looking at uh, Trump's wall, uh, it, 
again, 32 years of doing this. When I first came into the border patrol, there was very little infrastructure along the border. It was strands of barbed wire, if, if it was even up. Right. I, I remember uh, being in a high-speed pursuit, and I'm driving down off the freeway. We get into, into the, uh, the dirt, and we're driving through these ravines and stuff. And had it not been for another agent yelling out to me to stop, I would have driven right into Mexico. Oh, really? Because there was nothing to demarcate the U.S. and Mexico. Wow. So this is late 80s, early 90s. So it was a different world then, kind of? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We were arresting uh, anywhere from a million to a million and a half people a year. And every night it was high-speed pursuits, foot chases. We were catching 1,000 people a night. And that's just in one little station. Right. Um, I used to laugh because when I first joined the Border Patrol, I remember walking into a station and there was a somebody had, they had a shirt up shirt for sale and on the back of it was an agent laying face down with footprints on his back. I'm like, well, you know, what does that have to do? And he's like, just get out in the field and you'll see. And sure as heck, you were just getting overrun every day. It was really? crazy, absolutely crazy. So almost like playing Red Rover or something and they're just coming? Oh yeah, yeah, they would. So uh, if you uh, Google it or look on YouTube and you go back to late 80s, early 90s in San Diego, that, that was the epicenter of everything illegal migration. Mm. And what the, uh, the migrants would do and the smugglers would do is they'd line up on the Tijuana side of the border and they would watch the agents. And there weren't a lot. When I came to the border, we were about 2,500 of us. When I retired uh, in December, there were about 20,000 of us. So we've, really? we've grown tremendously, but even that's, you know, it's just, it's not enough to cover the border. So it's increased by almost 10 by tenfold and that's along the entire border yeah both uh, the southern border and the northern border so we've okay. got about uh, 16,000 agents on the southern border and just under 2,000 on the northern border and that, that gets forgotten too there's a threat up there on the northern border wow. it's different but it, there's still a threat up there right do you um when you have like a, a family that comes in oh wait let me get back to that to just to the trump wall so the wall was it being built it was right so one of the things and, and this is often um I think we talked about the media and, and, you know, you get a certain soundbite. So the media doesn't give you the full understanding or picture of what we're talking about. Right. When we were talking about the border wall, what it is, is it's a border enforcement system. Um, it's the wall, but more importantly, it's access to the wall. It's infrastructure. It's a road that leads to the wall. It's a road that parallels the wall so you can patrol. Mm. It's power. It's technology. Uh, it's it's this full package. Right. And, and so people often, again, they think about the border as being this urban area that you can just drive right up to and, and, and patrol very easily. When you go out into the mountains and the deserts, you need access. And what building the, the wall did was it gave us access to certain locations. So looking at uh, Trump's border wall, mm -hmm. um, there was some new wall that was built. And then more importantly, there was replacement wall. And I often laugh because people are like, well, it's, it's not wall. It's not new wall. Well, when you get a new pair of shoes, you don't call it a replacement pair of shoes. It's right. a new pair of shoes. Right. So we, we have new wall built. It was about, uh, I think it was 450 miles of wall that was built. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a decent amount. It's a decent amount. And, and the thing about this too is what the wall does is and what we looked at and we analyzed in the border patrols, where can we put wall that effectively shapes the environment for us so that we can make, A, we deter people from coming into the U.S., mm -hmm. And then more importantly, if they do elect to come into the U.S., where can we shape it so that it's advantageous to us to make an arrest? Right. Yeah, because there's so much uh, cost, too, that go into, like, just getting people out of, like, the middle of nowhere and getting them back to a location. Um, man, I, I just can't even imagine all the costs that go into a lot of that. So the wall now, are they finishing the wall? Are they stopping the wall? Oh. Do they know? No. So so the uh, when Biden came into, in, into his presidency— the new administration put a stop to all wall building, wow. um, which is very short-sighted. Uh, and I say it because of this. So in, in building the wall, it's not like they start at point A and then to B and then to C. What they did is it's A and B here and M and N over there. So that you have areas that are open. 
So, you know, they, they'll go and they'll clear out existing fencing or they'll grade for new wall. And then they're building in certain segments that, and building to finish the wall. So we've got, uh, in, in just in Arizona itself, there are probably about 300 gaps, um, some of which were are as, as small as 50 feet, some as wide as a quarter mile. Right. And other areas where the wall was built up to a point where you put a gate in and you need gates to go back and forth because you have to do maintenance on the fencing and the walls and sometimes rescues. And I'll talk to you about that here shortly. So they didn't finish these gates. So now you've got 300 gaps in the wall, which means 300 vulnerabilities. Wow. 300 places that smugglers can push people across. And um, one of the tools that smugglers use, and this really upset me. So when we had families and unaccompanied kids coming across, what these organizations would do is they would charter three to six buses. They'd drive them out to the desert because on on the Mexican side, their freeway parallels the border. Mm. On the U.S. side, other than the cities, there's nothing on our side of the border. Uh, Nothing, you know, anywhere from... Geez, I would say 30 to 80 miles before you hit any sort of infrastructure from wow. the U.S.-Mexico border. So these smugglers, they'd hire, charter these buses, they'd drive up 100 to 300 families and kids, and they'd drop them off in the desert and push them into the U.S. Knowing that our technology was going to pick up this, this uh, event, and then it would take us 24 to 40 hours because it's, again, in places, they were dropping off in places where we had very little access or infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So it would take us 24 to 48 hours to get four by four vehicles into these areas, load up the kids, load up the families, drive them to a place where we could then get a van or a bus and then drive them to a station. And so when this happens and it's done strategically, again, this is about making money, right? Right. It's done strategically. So you drop this group off here and then I've got to close operations for, in this particular location, I shut down a whole station, which is about 450 agents. Mm -hmm. And I dedicated all of those agents to getting these kids and these families out of the desert because mm-hmm. what's going to happen the heat or the cold is going to kill them and so when, wow. when your manpower is dedicated to this then you get segments of the border that are wide open and what happens they run drugs through there they run criminals through there so it's all about making money it's 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 a cat and mouse game you know a lot of people are selling things online and vending things and selling things and if you want those things if you if you uh if you're a seller you got to get rid of the product you got to push goods. You know what I'm saying, fam? No one does that better than ShipStation. No matter how much you sell, ShipStation makes it super easy to push weight, to manage and ship all your orders from all your sales channels faster, cheaper, and more efficiently. Ship with any carrier. Import orders from any sales channel. Access discounted shipping rates. Do it all. ShipStation. Whether you're selling through Amazon, Etsy, or your own website. Whether you're using UPS, FedEx, or USPS. You'll get access to amazing discounts. With ShipStation, small businesses can now access the same rates usually reserved for those Fortune 500 companies. Compete with the big boys. ShipStation has more five-star reviews than any other shipping service. Get our discount right now. Use the offer code T-H-E-O to get a 60-day free trial. That's two months free of no-hassle, stress-free shipping. Just go to ShipStation.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in T-H-E-O. That's ShipStation.com. Enter offer code Theo. Make ship happen. Oh, man. Cracking into a little bit of you know. Ah. <sighs>
liquid death. Are you paying uh, off credit card debt a lot? Do you see that bill come in and your day's been good, but you get it from the mailbox and you can barely even hug your children after that because your arms is shaking because you got so much damn debt? Well, when it comes to paying off debt, Upstart can help you get ahead. It's the fastest, easiest way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all done online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple, fixed monthly payment. Quit getting all of those statements. Get one. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash T-H-E-O. That's upstart, U-P-S-T-A-R-T, dot com slash Theo. Don't forget to use our URL. Let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash Theo. So sometimes the, the people, humans, will even be used just as a ploy to then run more expensive products over. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. One of the things we were witnessing, too, is uh, I was in San Diego prior to going to Tucson, and uh, San Diego at one point was accounting for about 60% of all hard narcotics, meth, coke, fentanyl. Oh, wow. San Diego. Yeah, dang. It's crazy. A lot of it come through the ports, and then some of it come between the ports. But in Arizona, it started to pick up. And, and the difference in Arizona was they were making these little blue tablets, fentanyl tablets, mm -hmm. which is much easier to, to smuggle and transport than, in, than you know bricks of the stuff. So you would get, and the way these guys operate, is, it's just phenomenal. Um, so the scenario I described, right? Here's mm -hmm. the diversion. Mm -hmm. I sent a group of three guys, three to five, all of them with a backpack, all of them carry. Well, the way they would work it is the first guy would have 20, 30 pounds of marijuana, right? Mm -hmm. the next guy food and supplies, the third guy would have the fentanyl and he would be carrying probably 10 to at the most 20 pounds of fentanyl. And then the other two guys, maybe meth, coke, something else. And so this group of five would come running across the border. Um, we would hope that we would pick them up. You know, if we're not, what we try to do is not get so distracted that we completely avoided everything because you, again, we had air assets, technology. And so you'd see this group and then the, 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 the group had the five guys the first guy, his job was to get arrested. Right. So that you, you have to deal then with him. dealing with him and the and the guy with the fentanyl, his job was to get away. And, and the other four guys would do everything in their power to make sure that he got away. Dang. So it was just it's like playing against business. Kansas City Chiefs almost kind of. <laughs> you know, it's almost yeah. like playing against Andy Reid in a way. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. they're coming with a plan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Man. And, you know, what's, what's crazy about this too is uh, – Thank you again for the opportunity. There's, I mean, there's so much that goes on at the border, and, and, I'm, and I'm trying to spit it out here, and my mind's racing because there's so much I'd like to say. But, you know, I talked about the industry, but one of the things that, that also happens, like these five guys that are coming across, mm -hmm. they're going to hike for 30 to 80 miles through the desert. So these cartels have logistical waypoints along there where they, they pay somebody to haul in food and water, fresh batteries. And so they're set up in the desert, in the mountains there. So as this group comes along, they're watching. So they got two jobs. Right. One is to resupply, and then the second job is to watch us. Mm. And it is, it's, it's a bear to catch them. I mean, in order to, to arrest these guys, at one point we did surveillance for probably four to six months, identifying all the spots. 
Right. And, and then we brought in, um, we brought in a whole slew of air assets, uh, um, <clears throat> Blackhawks and everything else. And we brought in our, our Bortac, which is like our SWAT team. Yeah. And uh, Borstar, which is our search and rescue team. All these guys are badass. Yeah. And uh, so we pinpointed all these locations. We coordinated with the Mexicans. And, uh, you know, I mentioned corruption. So we had to coordinate with Mexico City to bring out a, a vetted unit that we could trust. Ah. And so, the, you know, they they did the blocking on, on, on the Mexican side that the, so these guys couldn't run south and get away. Mm-hmm. And then we flew all these teams in at each of these spots and they'd rappel down and they'd run in the mountains and make these arrests. But, uh, you know, the, the amount of money and effort that goes into it oh, is it's tremendous. Insane. But the unfortunate part is you give it a week, maybe maybe a month, and then they're right back in business. And so then you have to replicate this. You have to start watching them and tracking them and just crazy. Can you tag them or something or shoot them with like a dart so you know where they are? They don't allow that? No, no. See, that's ridiculous to me a little bit. Like, it's almost like, especially for the guys who are doing the smuggling, can you, uh, cause we'll tag a goose, you know what I'm saying? To find out where he's having an egg, but you won't tag somebody who's freaking just running, you know, like anything across the border. Okay. Um, do they have, what about the smugglers? If you catch a smuggler, can you prosecute them? Is there prosecution against them? There is. Okay. So one of, the, one of the things that's evolved over time is uh, it used to be the smuggler or the guide would come across with that group and you'd make the arrest and then you could work towards a prosecution. Uh, we also, you have to recognize that we're competing with all the other federal agencies to get a prosecution. So, you know, probably one out of three cases gets prosecuted. Why? Because some of them, and there's water right there too, if you need it, right? Oh, um, because, so you're competing with them to get a prosecution. Yeah. In other words, so the, the U S attorney, mm-hmm. um, his or her office can only, they only have so many attorneys, so they can only present so many cases. So they're looking for the best of the best cases. And you're dealing, you're competing with DEA, FBI, U S marshals. But they know. all want the clout from it. You mean? Well, you want a winning record, right? If, if I'm a, a, a U.S. attorney, I want to have a record that's 100 no. I want to win every doggone case I present. Right. And I also want to take the sexiest cases. You know, right. I don't want the simple Joe Blow case. I want a case that gets headlines. I want a case that's going to make me look good. Right. So when you've got, and every day, I mean, you've got a tremendous amount of cases you can come up with. I want to hand pick. I'm going to cherry pick the best case because I want to win. And I want to get a good a good name behind myself. Oh, the smugglers! So they'll pros- try and prosecute the best smugglers. Yeah, the best smugglers or a smuggler that's tied to a particular organization. Ah. Um, you know, it, so that again, this is back in the day when you get these guides and these smugglers. Now, what's happened with technology? Everybody has a cell phone, mm. uh, and some of the locations, the cell phone service has gotten to the point that it virtually touches every part of the border now, which means they can communicate, they can pull up, they can track as they're moving along. So smugglers will sit in Mexico. And uh, they'll text, okay, you're going to walk for a mile. I'm watching you. When you get to this point, you're going to turn left. You're going to walk for three miles. And then you're going to get to this mountain. You're going to get you're resupplied. You're going to get door dash. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just <laughs> it's getting rid- it's, it's crazy. And, and you know, we, we try to employ technology. And there's um, there, there's certain types of technology, some of which I can't talk about, but that we employ when, we, when we're that working. That can jam cell phones and stuff like that? Stuff that can jam cell phones, track cell phones. Uh, and more importantly, um, uh, one of the things that happened with, with uh, the Trump administration is he, so the president gets to declare his uh, his top priorities. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, immigration and border enforcement was, you know, it wasn't even on the, on the radar screen. With President Trump, it was in the top five. Uh, I think it was number three. And as a result of that, we got access to um, a bunch of agencies that have s- techniques, skills, tools, technology that goes well beyond what we've ever experienced. And wow. that really enabled us to start painting a better picture along the border. Um, you know, everything from looking at, uh, it, it was kind of it was very frustrating because you would look across the border cause a smuggler sits here and he's watching you knowing that you can't do anything to arrest him unless 
I shouldn't say that. Very far few between do you get to arrest that guy because you have to work with the Mexicans. And like I said, some of these guys are paid off. And then you have to build up a case, go to Mexico City, and then sometimes you get the arrest. But um, the the ability to do is just, I, I wish it was better. Mm-hmm. Um, to, pro- to be able to, to actually prosecute, to prosecute these guys? Yeah. Because yeah. really it's just a lot of return. So is it a lot of just returning them? It is. So so you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, unaccompanied children, there's a process uh, for them that, you know, we take their information. A lot of them show up, they have a phone number uh, written down somewhere or a piece of paper and you'll contact that person and then you start and you work at the, the consuls of those countries, whether it's Mexico or Guatemala. And you start backtracking to identify who the child is, if they have family in the U.S., and how you can connect them with that family. And then they're, they're released from our custody into um, another organization that does the housing and the feeding until they can get them into a relative or a parent's hands. Okay. And in some cases, when it can't be done, then they work towards getting them back to their, their uh, family in, in whatever country they're coming from. Okay. That's kids. Family units are usually processed, and then they're released into the U.S., um, so like if a mother and a couple of and two children come in and a father, then they're processed and released into the U S yeah. And where do they have to go back to Mexico or they can just stay? So, and this is what's, uh, looking at 2014, uh, looking, thinking about the, the, the viewer's question there. One of the things that's happening right now is that up until about 2010, 2014, I think is more realistic. Most people coming across are single adults. Right. Yeah. So they're arrested. Um, some were prosecuted. Some were just simply returned back into Mexico. In 2014, people began to realize that they could exploit the asylum loophole. In other words, I come here and I say, Theo, I, I want asylum. Right. And because of that, I've got to process you and then I've got to release you. And when I release you, now you have access to state aid. Uh, you get a, a work authorization and you may not have a hearing for five years. And that's if you elect to show up. And a lot right. of people don't show up for their hearings. So they don't necessarily qualify for asylum. Um, and I think that's, it's one of the shortfalls of this because you, you've really, um, you've bastardized the definition of asylum. And for those that truly need asylum, now they've become one of a million people asking for it. And, and you've, you, you've taken that away from them. Right. And at the same time, now these folks are using the system against the system in order to benefit from them, mm. from it, excuse me. And so the, the family units, they come in, they ask for asylum, uh, they get into the U.S. and they disappear. Wow. Um, you know, your criminal aliens, they get prosecuted. And, and again, we have folks that, um, you know, robbers, rapists, narcotic traffickers, you name it. And, you know, they'll get prosecuted for what's either illegal entry or re-entry um, or being an ag felon. And they can get anywhere from a year to some up, upwards of 10 years. In uh, in prison? Yeah. But Fe- then that's federal prison. Have, prison that we have to take care it's like it's still on the american tab really yeah absolutely. um have you had to release people that you know are criminal like release people just into the country and you're like this i should not be releasing this person but there's nothing i can do about it like that's out of your yeah they're, they're um i've never had to release like a hardcore criminal right you're gonna do everything in your if you've got a hardcore criminal and you know that's a bad dude right you can do everything in your power to make sure that he's either returned to mexico or there's some legal resource you can use i.e maybe he's got a warrant in some sheriff department or something so you can get him picked up and held and then prosecuted right uh you do everything in your power to do that but uh, i think what uh, like looking at today right now with the situation at the border um it, it's a crisis it, is it a crisis oh absolutely and, and i'll tell you why it's a crisis <clears throat> there's a focus on kids there's a focus on family units um so in 2019 we had we had a border crisis then 
And what made it a crisis was these two populations, families and kids, what they do is they cause the system to just to come to a complete grinding halt. Right. Because there is no law enforcement entity in the world that's designed to house or care, feed children and families. Right. You know, <clears throat> so we often heard, um, you know, negative backlash about, oh, you know, it's inhumane treatment and, and X, Y, and Z, but nobody's situated for that. But when you get... I think it was a hundred, almost 200,000 family units and something like 80,000 unaccompanied children. When you put the, put that into the system, that's not designed for it. It just, it stops, it's gridlocked. And then everything else falls apart behind it. You, mm. you can't prosecute, you can't house criminal aliens. So the system will collapse. It's a crisis on multiple fronts. First and foremost, because it's not being addressed, the flow is going to continue. Right. Um, you know, the unfortunate part and, and for the border patrol, you, you we're apolitical, you know, we're, we're worked for 32 years under different administrations. Uh, every administration, you know, you, you give them the facts, you tell them what, what's going to, what you think is going to work, what's going to benefit. And, and then you step back and then you, you fall in the line. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this administration was briefed on. If you reverse these programs, if you take these steps, this is what's going to happen. And, uh, unfortunately, sure as shit, that's what happened. So, so we're in a space right now where it's, uh, do you feel like it's, how how bad is it right now compared to what it's been like during your tenure? So in 2019, um, so like you mentioned the caravan earlier, and that was the first of its kind. We had tw- something like 20,000 people. This is a few years ago. You remember that Honduran caravan? There was yep. all of this, like, there was pictures, and there was, like, some of the pictures were even stolen images from um, Hotel Rwanda. I remember <laughs> I remember seeing one, and it was, like, a bunch of black guys with machetes, and I'm like, I don't think this, this is the same thing. But um, that was a big thing. How much of that was just, like, a political football kind of being kicked around, and how much of that was, like, an actual group of people on the way oh it, so it started out it was multiple groups of a couple thousand and then the biggest group was something like eight thousand mm-hmm. and then they they convened together first it was honduras and then el salvador got on board then guatemala and so when these groups convened together they they were close to twenty thousand. uh when they hit the mexico border and this is when uh the, the u.s put pressure on mexico mexico made an effort to stop them but it wasn't a concerted effort it wasn't like we we're absolutely going to do it and then there was some rioting at the mexico guatemala border and then eventually the crowd pushes through. Mm. And then what happened as they progressed through Mexico was um, cities decided that they didn't want, you know, who wants 20,000 people camped out in your city? So cities started um, chartering buses and they would start moving these folks along. And then when they got to Mexico City, they housed them in a big stadium there, El Estadio, and uh, medical care, food, everything else, and that was, and offering them jobs. That was one of the things that they, that they did was, hey, look, if you're work, looking for work, We've got work. We'll give you a work permit. We'll get you set up. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody was pretty much in town on getting to the U.S. Um, so then they began, and this was all being organized, and it was, I mean, Facebook, and people were giving them cell phones. So then they got on the move God, again. So wild. Yeah. And uh, La Bestia, the, the train that goes uh, comes up from um, southern Mexico to the tip of south uh, southern Texas, McAllen, Rio Grande, in that area, mm-hmm. that's what this group was planning on taking. Free ride, dangerous as hell, but free ride to the border. Um, so we got the Mexican government to stop the train. Wow. And then that caused this group to to rethink what they were going to do. So then they started moving towards uh, Arizona and towards California. And so when they got to California, I was in San Diego at the time. They got to San Diego. It was uh, along the way they had broken up. Some went into South Texas. Some went into um, Arizona. And then a large group went all the way up into San Diego. And it was about 12,000 strong. And uh, they were held up in Tijuana. A lot of the Mexican people didn't want them there. Wow. Um, and again, it's just, 
it's this large group of people that are showing up on your border that you're having to house and feed and care for. Yeah. And then what comes with it, crime. Right. And, and some of it's directed at the migrants. I mean, it's a population that can be easily exploited. So, you know, when we talk about what are some of the things that happen, I, I certainly, I worry about, you know, it's a population that we're having to contend with. We're going to have to arrest, but you also worry about these people because. Right. Because they're still, it's still human beings. Every yeah. human being. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of times what I saw in, uh, in the span of my career, when I first came on board the Border Patrol, we were, we were kind of uh, vilified. You know, there were Corridas, Mexican songs written about these hard ass Border Patrol agents. And, and, you know, fast forward 30 years, um, before I left, I, had, I was at the border with some of my agents and there was a group of uh, Hondurans and this mom and her two daughters came across and brought them to cuss. And I walked up just to talk to them. So I want to get, you know, right from the horse's mouth in regards to what was it like. And I started talking to mom and she starts crying and the little girls run up and they grab my leg. And uh, you know, it chokes me up thinking about it. It was, and after she calmed down, I said, why are you crying? And she goes, because I know I've made it and I know that I'm safe because I'm in your arms. So the, the mentality of these folks is they're doing this dangerous trip from wherever they're coming, but they know that the minute they get into our custody, the minute they see the border patrol, they've made it to the U.S. and that they're safe and going to be cared for. Mm. And it was just, it was the crazy, craziest experience for me because I, again, when I first started, it was like, whoa, I don't want to be there to the border patrol and to I'm running for you and I, I'm embracing you. And it's just crazy. Man, it's... Uh, uh, yeah, I, it's so tough because it's like I have so much like human empathy, you know, just like, a, you know, like um, sometimes almost too much, I feel like. And then it's also tough, like, um, you know, a business that doesn't because America really is a business, you know, as much as we like to think that it, it's also a group of people who are trying to, you know, it's a society, it's a structure, but it's definitely has its ledgers for sure, where everything is, uh, you know, accounted for. But then you get into this, it's. You know, this it feels like just a lot of inventory that nobody kind of really is writing down. You know, um, are we getting a lot of people in that we don't really know that you know we don't have like paperwork on? Um, oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one of the things that we, you know you have to look at is you're, you're talking about a, a, an unfettered flow of of migration in the U.S. Yeah. Prior to 2018, 2019, uh, annual app apprehensions were three to 400,000. Okay, a year. A year. Across the whole border. Across the whole border. Okay. So again, looking back to 80s and 90s when it was over a million, million and a half, tremendous improvement. Right. And now we're almost, we're in that 700 to a million a year again. So this is this unchecked, unfettered population surge that's coming across every year. And that's what we encounter and apprehend. Right. Um, you know, it's it's hard to guesstimate what's getting away from us. You know, when you're distracted, when you have agents that are distracted on families and kids that are giving up and then caring for them, what's getting by us? Right. So, you, you know, every year there's probably minimally 500,000, maybe upwards of 2 million people that are coming across illegally and coming into the U.S. that we don't know who they are. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things with the current situation in COVID is we also have to recognize that COVID has impacted these countries probably much more severely than it has the U.S. You know, the medical capabilities aren't, aren't uh, the same as they are here in the U.S. Right. Um, so you're getting a population of people that are coming into the U.S. We're, we're not doing COVID testing on them. So you have the, the potential of another resurgence of COVID in the U.S. And part of what happened um, when COVID started back, you know, last year is we uh, implemented what's uh, known as Title 42, which is the ability to 
when you come across, I make the arrest and I expel you immediately. I don't bring you into a station. I, I, my goal is to get you back across the border and out of the U.S. as quickly as possible to minimize that exposure. Um, and they, they, that was started during COVID? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So prior to that, it was you were arrested, driven to a station, processed. And, and with COVID, it was you don't even come into the station and, and we get you out of there as quickly. Was that kind of nice? That's great. But the only problem with it is that uh, so when I came to the Border Patrol in 88, we were just arresting people and you'd process them and you'd return them right back to Mexico. And then you'd see them again on the same shift or the right. next day. And so it was just ever constant revolving door with, with title 42. Man. We're kind of there again because all the courts are shut down. So there's no prosecution. There's no deterrence. You can't house them. So you put them back on the border and the smuggler says, Hey, I'm taking you back across. You know, you paid me. I'm going to get you back across. And they just keep on doing this. So until we get the, the court system tur turned back on, um, and then I, I think, unfortunately, until the Biden administration recognizes that that they are their actions and their words are having an impact, they're driving illegal migration. Ah, I until see. that changes, it, this is going to continue. So when, when we talk about crisis, I mentioned the system coming to a grinding halt. But the bigger issue is that um, there isn't enough from this administration saying you can't come here. Right. You, you know, you're going to be prosecuted. Or the the reality behind this whole thing is in. in People may find this uh, quizzical thinking, you know, here's an enforcement officer, but our immigration system has to be revamped. And you have to think about this as it's it's a whole system, the enforcement part mm -hmm. and the legal part. If you fix the legal part, then that enables the enforcement part to focus on the true criminals, the, the really bad elements. When you have a, a legal system that's messed up and is not working well, that's when you get all these people that are, take the illegal route and then it just burdens border security. Mm. So, you know, I'm a strong advocate of whether it's this administration or the next one, somebody has to come in and fix our, our immigration system as a whole. Really? But they can't do it half-assed. You can't right. focus on the legal part and not the enforcement part, or you can't take apart the enforcement part and then bolster the legal part. You need to do it simultaneously so that you've got this immigration system, this umbrella that works well. Mm. So it's a really a two-arm deal, huh? Oh, absolutely. Does it feel uh, futile sometimes? Like the, how do you guys maintain that morale if it seems, yeah, what, does it feel futile? It does. It, you know, one of the things I've been talking to some of the agents that are still out in the field and it's, uh, you know, it's the antithesis of what you've been trained and what you've been doing for your careers, arresting people and removing them from the country or prosecuting them. And now you're arresting them and you're releasing them into the country. Uh, the other thing too is when you release them, a, a lot of what's what's not being reported is the impact on the border communities. Right. Oh, I think about that a lot Ooh. of times. Like, yeah, if you're a family that has a house there 20 years ago or something, and you you know worked hard in a town and you you know provided for your family and you bought a home, and then what's that like for them? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you have the potential of driving the value of the home down, but the the, the greater impact is. When we look at, at uh, the, the Title 42 thing, it was also about preserving our medical system in the U.S. Because we wanted to make sure that we had ample medical care for U.S. residents. Right, right, right. If you allow this population to come in, it can overwhelm the medical system. Um, but when we have people being released at the border, so now you have to house, feed, care for. You have to provide medical care for them. So some of these border communities, they're not equipped for that. Mm. You know, they're not equipped for a surge of 1,000 or 20,000 people coming in on a daily basis. And so it, it overwhelms them. You know, they don't have the deep pockets to pay for this stuff. And right now the government's not doing anything to help them out. Oh, man. Here's a question we have that came in right here uh, from a fella right here. Theo, what's up, bro? This is a question from Roy out here in Johnson City, Tennessee. Just wondering 
what's the biggest uh, danger that you go through on a daily basis out there? If it's uh, certain wild animals or uh, cartel, just curious, gang, gang, brother. Gang, baby. What's thank you for that question, man. Uh yeah, bro. What do you think is like, yeah, what's kind of a danger when you when the guys leave on their details or on their what's some of the biggest dangers you that you guys face? And it could be physical, it could even be emotional dangers that you feel. So I, there's a whole realm of dangers. I mean, honestly, so the cartels, the criminals, that's one in and of itself. Uh you're dealing with the environment. So if you're out there in the desert and you're hiking around, dehydration, yeah. hypothermia. I I've uh tragically I've had a number of agents that have died from from uh, dehydration um, at age and hiking up Patagonia Mountain had a heart attack and died. Really? Oh yeah. So I, I mean, the elements in and of themselves are danger. And then you get the, the criminal aspect. Um, some of these guys they carry weapons. Some of them. Oh yeah. They don't want to be taken into custody. You know. Um, <clears throat> and at one point, particularly in, in Arizona, we had ripoff crews. These were gangbangers coming from Phoenix down to the border, mm -hmm. laying in, in in the mountains or the deserts out there to rip off the uh, the mules coming across with the, wow. the dope. And so you know, we had an agent who got caught up in the middle of a firefight and got killed. Um, <clears throat> and then you know, he mentioned wild animals. Man, we're dealing with uh, rattlers out there, um, pumas. You, you, there's some serious oh, animals damn, out there. Yeah, some buzzards. Oh, yeah. And then you got the, you know, you go down to Texas, you got the Rio Grande. In some places you walk right across it. Other places you it's dangerous as hell. Yeah. So, there, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that can, unfortunately, law enforcement as a whole is a dangerous job. But there's a bunch of things that can kill you out there. Um, what, uh, when you, is it hard for Border Patrol agents, like some of them, whether they're to set aside any political beliefs they may have and just do their job? Do you see any of that? Or most of the guys, like you said, administration just changes over time and, um, and you guys just kind of stay on the task at hand? You know, it, it does bother you personally. Of course, you know, you, you want somebody that's supporting your endeavors, um, but you don't, take it to work um you know again because we're gonna every four years you have the potential for working for a new boss right and the rules can change every four years what's uh i think what's what's fortunate for the agent in the field is that you know you're you're tasked with enforcing the laws that have been legislated by congress right and so even though the president may not like those laws it's the law and it's hard for him to change it or her to change it maybe someday um so you you try to stay apolitical but it certainly bothers you when you're not getting support does it um does it so yeah so obviously laws have to change and it's it's a lot for things to actually change that would affect the way that you guys operate but you're saying that if it's not like maybe more vocal support uh from the media or from a president or from an office then it like it, like if if they see border say if i'm a coyote or a smuggler or someone who um you know, one of these plaza kingpins who's helping run, you know, run guys through my district or whatever to cross the border to make more money. Um, if I see this, I know that the system's taxed and I know to attack more. I know to ramp it up. Is that the kind of thing that happens by like when you see like that there's a border crisis? Oh, absolutely. They take advantage of, of anything. They'll exploit any opportunity. Man. So the current situation, absolutely. They're looking at if I've got family units and kids over here encumbering the agents, then I can run over here to the right of them. Um, it, 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 it's such a, it's interesting. It's a business. It really is. It is a business. And uh, as a young man, I started out in, um, in uh, San Diego. I worked at a checkpoint. And we would see these cycles. That you're always trying to get a hold of, of what the next trend was. So 
when college, you know, college season, late August, when kids are going back to school, mm-hmm. you'd see kids smuggling dope. Oh yeah, you know? we used to smuggle it. Dude, I remember one time <laughs> we took, we went down to Mexico. Well, we, uh, I remember one time we all went down there and bought pills because that was like something you could do in Mexico, you could mm-hmm. buy pills. And we all took them. Then we all got, so we ended up stealing everybody's pills from each other. So now we're all sitting around in a room. We'd each stolen each other's pills and we're all lying. Everybody's looking for their own pills and had stolen the other person's pills. Everybody's just lying that they had stolen. And then one time we got steroids and we couldn't find a way to, so we put them in like a shampoo bottle. And I remember for a couple months back in Louisiana, we literally would just like put like a syringe into a shampoo bottle. And like, I mean, like we were horses drinking out of like a soapy trough, you know? Oh my gosh. I remember the, the weights just kept slipping out of my hands for about three months. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, there's definitely like, a, you know, it's interesting because there's like an allure for it when you're an American kid growing up. There's an allure to go down to Mexico and it's almost like uh there's just less laws, less regulations, less infrastructure. So you yeah. you kind of have carte blanche to kind of um, get into just more trouble is, is capable. Oh, absolutely. So you see it. So so you're saying, sorry to interrupt you, but you saw some people. So at a certain seasons of the border, oh, it's yeah. just spring breakers you'll, coming back across. You'll see college kids uh, smuggling because, you know, looking for tuition, books, whatever money. Oh, yeah. Um, and at one point, you know, as soon as you catch on to that trend, then they shift to something else. Uh, I've seen senior citizens. Um, oh really oh yeah you know they're supplementing their income you know the uh Dang. the clint eastwood movie the mule yeah that's real i mean two years ago i was in arizona and we caught a guy who's 68 68 or 68 69 i can't remember old guy he was a mule smuggling dope Dang. and we were talking to him, he said, i've been doing this for years you guys you look at an old man you don't think of a of a drug smuggler nah man that colon cane baby are they putting cocaine like are they doing the balloons still what are people doing man i'd be worried about uh yeah that colon cane that used to be the big thing people would like like swallow cocaine balloons do people still do that oh yeah so uh every mechanism uh when i was working in uh el centro this is uh southern california they were uh, so every day across the border and, and the borders it's such a dynamic place if you haven't right. been there you, you need to go down go. there experience it and uh, but it, every day hundreds of kids cross the border to go to school and so what these organizations had done is they took their school books they hollowed it out just big enough to put a key in there and so here come these little kids every day they'd walk across they'd walk a block down and there was a car they, you know they tell the kids you walk down there's gonna be a red Mazda windows gonna be down shove your book in there mm. on the way home from school walk through here there's gonna be a blue mazda doors open grab your, your book and so you would see this you know until you catch on that trend right here's these little kids dropping off a book you know and it was an astute agent who's like what the hell are they doing went so, over looked in and there you know a dozen books in there and yeah so 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 kids get used a lot huh yeah because they're not going to get prosecuted ah uh. so they'll get used and, and uh to to bring that stuff over uh what's unfortunate than these kids that you know they migrate to the next level right because they're already caught in the game they're it's caught already, in the game yeah. yeah yeah and it's it's not it's not a pleasant game it's not the type of game where you can be like yeah i'm not gonna do it today you know there's consequences on this other side and these aren't nice people yeah man it must be such a trying position that you guys are in then um because you're the human element that's right there at the front so you it's like do I have to follow these laws 
but sometimes you're going to have to turn a kid over to an organization or to a country, to an environment, to a structure that doesn't really care about it as much. Um, do, is there enough, like, by allowing, like, some of the leniencies that we have here, are we making it harder? Do we make it easier on these countries? Like, do we make it less responsibility on these countries to police their own, you, their own, like, um, and not really police, but to to run their own societies well? Like, are we alleviating, like, pressures on them to, like, if we stop things, are they going to have to deal with, would that leave more on their plate to deal with to actually get their, get, like, a better act together? Yeah, so there's cause and consequence. Um, <clears throat> Sorry it took me so long to ask, too. <laughs> I just, it's hard to be smart sometimes, man. It's hard. No, there, oh, there, it hurts my neck. <laughs> There's certainly cause and consequence, and, and one of the things you have to understand also is there's a culture there. You know, you're 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 dealing with a culture that doesn't necessarily match up line for line with the U.S. culture. Right. You know, what's acceptable there may not be acceptable here. Um, you know, migrating here from from Mexico for the longest time, it was just part of growing up. You hit 15, 16, you're expected to migrate to the U.S., start working, and send money back home. Right. Um, so there's a cultural thing that we're dealing with, and then. Anything we do on the U.S. side certainly has a trickle-down effect. It's going to have some sort of reaction to Mexico. Uh, I, I dealt a lot with, uh, again, uh, Mexican government from uh, their U.S. attorney's office, their federal police. Mexican military has a big part on border enforcement down there. Um, you know, one of their complaints was when you, know, when you, when you do enforcement, you know, it's very one-sided, and it has been for years, and, and, and I felt guilty when I finally recognized it. It was a Mexican general. We were... We were uh, at a meeting in, in Tijuana, and, and uh, I got to tell you, I, I always love meeting with the Mexican generals because it's it's just a it's a different world and the level of treatment you get. And, and we'll talk about culture in a second on that. But um, he says, "Hey, Roy, you know, you, you always we focus on what you want. I need you to focus on what I want because all we do is look at stuff going north. You don't take the time on looking what's coming south. Mm. In other words, we're going to send drugs north, and this money is coming south, and these weapons are coming south." And the combination of the weapons and the money which buys the weapons is messing up my, my society. Mm. You know, and, and Tijuana was just, it was a horrendous place for border violence, for cartel action. Um, there was just deaths every day. And so he's like, wow. you, you need to help me. Do something to stop some of this from coming into my country. Mm. Uh, and, and it wasn't until then I, I kind of realized that. Yeah, it's just, God, it's crazy. I mean, it's just such a, do you feel like there's a like a solution? Do you feel like, what would help? Like, what do you think could help? Oh man, there are so many things that, that could help. Okay, you know, it, it, and so the border crisis is a, is a now thing. Okay, and, and we need the government uh, to step. And not not the government. We need Congress. We need the White House, but more, I think Congress more than anything, kind of to to get in the game. Right. Um, you know, if I can be blunt, it's Congress needs to get its head out of its ass mm -hmm. and start doing something. Right. They have the power of the purse and the power to legislate. Right. Um. They need to apply the purse towards addressing this, um, helping with the, the kids and the family units. They need to legislate. They need to revamp the entire immigration system. And, uh, you know, I, I applaud the Biden administration for looking at, you know, what do we do to invest in the source? You know, where are these people coming from? Right. That's great. And we always try to do economic redevelopment in these countries. But they have to recognize that you, could, you can't put a billion dollars in El Salvador today and expect it to stop this flow. Right. You have to recognize that it's going to take... 10 or 20 years before that plan comes to fruition. So in order to make things better, it's it's revamping the immigration system. It's helping some of these sending countries, but it's also having a very 
strong, effective immigration system that includes the border enforcement. Right. You know, you just you can't undermine it. And whether it's technology, more agents, more infrastructure, whatever it may be, you, just, you need to secure that border. Hmm. Man. So, so you have to have the border. You have to have the actual boots on the ground. They need help, and then the legislate. You have to have better ways to legislate and just process things. Yeah. Congress has to do its job. Right. I mean, it really hasn't done anything towards um, addressing the problem. Uh, and, and a lot of what's going on right now is uh, Congress's fault from the last two or three years because a lot of the funding that was earmarked for um, detention, for remodeling detention facilities, was removed from the budget because part of the intent was to ensure that people were being released. Okay. So now you fast forward two years and what's happening, we can't hold these people, so we have to release them. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a vicious cyclical game and, and I, I would just hope that uh, our elected officials just focus on the problem. It, not only for the humanity of, of these kids and these families, but also for the, the bigger aspect of the border security. You know, one thing we didn't touch was terrorism. Yeah. Um, I, I assure you, <clears throat> and I can't speak to specifics because there's, there's classifications behind it, but there are folks that have terrorist ties, terrorist training, that are intent on hurting us, that have come across our southern border. So you're seeing, so you definitely see people that you're like, oh, this is not a Mexican person looking for asylum. You see, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and I mentioned the, the the amount of money that's charged. These guys are paying big bucks. Um, and for like right after 9/11, a, a lot of the smugglers refused to have anything to do with anybody that that came from a Middle Eastern country, mm. just because it, you know, they, they kind of painted everybody with a wide brush. You're probably a terrorist, right? Um, so even the smugglers had like a there was sort of a code of honor, right? right code of right, ethics. Right, 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 right. But uh, you, know, you get away from 9/11, we kind of forget about They're it. Like and, man, if you smuggle that guy in, he's going <laughs> to blow up the country. We'll have no place to smuggle. Yeah, people. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but now it's just really open range, huh? It is to a degree. I, I mean, there are, it, it's funny to think about this because it, 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 to a degree, it's almost a symbiotic relationship because you, you do have some smugglers who, uh, one thing that everybody despises is a pedophile. Right. And uh, if they know you're a pedophile or you do something in their miss and they're you know, hurting a kid or something, if they don't beat your ass or kill you, they'll shove you across the border with a little note letting you know who he is. Letting you guys know? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've, seen, I've, I've seen that on a couple occasions where somebody's left on the other side of the border tied to a tree or cuffed up and with a little note, hey, this guy's a check your records. Wow. Yeah. So, there, I mean, there's a little bit of street justice, a little bit of ethics on there, but they're still driven by the almighty dollar. Um, and I would hope that as, if it related to terrorist stuff, that they would still refrain from it because it, it, it harms both. Yeah. You know? Yo, better help. H-E-L-P. You get timely and thoughtful responses. You get co connected with a real therapist, not somebody, not your mom's friend who's chatty and hits on you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. Maybe you don't want to drive over there to the help center in your town or village or um, experimental area where you live. Maybe you don't want to be seen walking in there in the back of a nudie shop and somebody's back there giving advice. Better help sets you up with licensed professional therapists. You can do it on FaceTime. You can do it on the phone. You can do it over text. Better help wants you to start living a happier, healthier life today. Visit betterhelp.com slash Theo. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. Join the over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. That's right. And you will get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash T-H-E-O.
Oh, if you need help, go get it. Betterhelp.com slash Theo. Um, here is a, let's get the one that came up a minute ago by the military guy in the white shirt. Theo Vaughn, what's up, man? It's, uh, Patrick Bryant. I'm out of Kentucky, but I'm over here at Joint Base Lewis-McChord right now. Uh, I got a question for your man, Roy. Uh, how did he feel about the military joining up with the Border Patrol a few years back? I was down there with him out of Fort Knox. I just wanted to know what his opinion on that was. Oh, gang, brother. Thank you, man. Um, do you, uh, yeah, what was that like? Was it, is it nice when other organizations are on board? Does it get a little sticky? Is there like kind of like a lot of posturing or is it pretty fun sometimes? Yes, 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 and yes. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it, it's, it's very sticky. So, you know, we got posse comitatus, which prevents the military from taking any sort of, uh, enforcement action. So anything that, that they do for the border patrol Mm -hmm. is, um, support. Okay. So when I say support, um, they can fix our vehicles. Uh, they can run our scopes, like our, you know, our infrared cameras. They can run. Uh, they can do uh, LPOPs, listening post outposts, where you'll put a a group of. Uh, it's it's a great training environment along the southern border. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they'd send out um, snipers, and they'd put them up on a hill, and they would stay there for two weeks at a time, and they would just report stuff to us. Um, but everything they do is just about support. It's not actually right. put hands on or anything. Uh, so to answer the question. Absolutely loved having the military on, on the border because it, it freed up uh, agents to go and actually do patrol work. Right. Plus, it was a great training environment for our military. So, that, you know, that mission readiness for them when they go across the pond. And then the bigger aspect is there was, there was always this exchange of, of information and, um, and, and, and know-how. Because some of the things we'd learned from them. And, and, right. But the biggest part was uh, the building of infrastructure. Uh, I mean, they'd, they'd come in and they'd fix our roads or build roads for us and and again, to be able to get to the border helps win that battle. Yeah, it's just so interesting to hear you say that about that wall, about the fact that it was going to also provide, um, like that there was uh, that there was electricity, but that there was like uh, just a little bit of infrastructure, especially out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, that probably just would have helped so much. I, I, I'm telling you, I'm inviting you come out to, to Arizona. I'll take you out there. Yeah, you'll be shocked. We'll we'll drive from an urban area and we'll drive three, maybe five miles out, and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And there's no border infrastructure. There's no power. There's nothing. And, and again, I think middle America just has no concept of what the border really means. I mean, you're you're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I've driven through West Texas, and that even gets like, you know, even on I-10 or whatever that is, yeah, it's mm-hmm. like that gets harrowing. I mean, I, I know there was like one point about 45 miles where there's just no exit. You know, there's no... If you need gas for something, you already should have got it. So, yeah, I can't even imagine what it's like when you – I mean, and that's a long an interstate. Yeah. Know, so I can't even imagine what it's like when you get kind of uh, in a in – a, in a, you you're, you're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's, it's you. Maybe you have a partner. Sometimes you're partnered up. Sometimes you're not. He, your partner could be 20 miles away, and, and uh, it's pitch black. You're relying on your radio if you have radio reception. Um, you know, and I've got agents that they're using four wheel, four wheel drive vehicles, ATVs, motorcycles. Sometimes you're just hiking out on foot. You'll park your vehicle, and then you just hike – um, uh, UTVs, you name it. I mean, they're out there and they're doing the job. Uh, in Texas, they're on boats, you know, and we still use horses. Right. Um, it, it, people laugh, like, why would you use horses? But they get you in and out of places that you can't do with a vehicle. Yeah. A great resource. And uh, the horses, uh, <laughs> I, I laugh because uh, to them, it's almost like a game. Mm. They get to the point where they're smelling and they hear people and they start getting giddy. You can fill them tents up. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good friend of mine was on, on the horse patrol and, uh, he wasn't paying attention. He wasn't paying attention to his horse and let go of the reins. He was sitting there 
bullshit with another agent. And his horse heard a group of people over the next little hill, took off. He fell off, broke his arm. By the time they got up to the horse, the horse had circled up and basically made the arrest. Yeah, you know? the horse is up there learning Spanish, and he's <laughs> he's fixing his arm. Um, yeah. What? Uh, so yeah, with the kids, it's just such a God. There's just such a there's so many little elements going on there. It's like it must pull on your heartstrings sometimes. But are there other times where you just feel like the kids are being used, and it's not about um, an actual like getting a better life for a child? Is there that that happens also? Yeah, you know. Um, the every day at the border there there's there's so many different stories right. um i think for those in law enforcement you go from being a social worker to a caregiver to to the cop right you run the full myriad of things you have to do every day and uh with kids it's just it's different because you're when you walk up and there's three little kids it's a 10 year old and a six-year-old and their two-year-old uh sibling it, it just blows my mind because you're realizing that this group of kids just traversed thousands of miles by themselves, walked out in the middle of the doggone desert, or I shouldn't say walk. I mean, somebody drove them up there and pushed them across the border and they're left out there exposed. Um, and sometimes they may have that phone number in their pocket. Sometimes, and I've seen it when they, they break it out and it's gotten washed away because they, you know, they were dirty or soiled or, or went through a river. And then how do you find their parents? You know, we've, we've had cases where an infants, newborns, you just, you go out there and you find them that are there and, and, what do you do? You know, how do you, how do you track back the parents of this child? Yeah. We, and we've also had some, some cool stories where, uh, this was in San Diego where I don't know why mom did this, but she handed her baby off to another guy and they're coming across the border and the agents went to make the arrest and she runs left and he runs right. She, she didn't know who he was. Right. And uh, we end up arresting him. She ends up running back into Mexico and, uh, you know, start the processing, asking the questions. And he says, Hey, this is my baby. I don't want, you know, here, I don't want it. And all of a sudden, here we are at this newborn. And we're thinking, how do you, where do you find mom? Wow. And this is when you work at the, you know, in this case, it was the, the Mexican consul and, and uh, she happened to be from Guatemala and the Guatemalan consul. And you get the word out and then you get the word out to, on the, on the south side of Mexico, there are organizations, uh, non-government organizations that help these people, um, whether it's food, housing, whatever it may be. And so you put the word out and you hope that mom is there. Right. Or that maybe if mom actually made it into the U.S., maybe she gets a hold of the consul and, hey, we found, found a baby. In this particular case, it took two days, and mom finally came up and said, hey, that's my child. Mm. Describe the child to a T, what, what the baby was wearing, and we were able to reunite them. But, you know, that doesn't happen all the time. Man, yeah. You know, and, and it, tragically, uh, every year, there's two to 500 people that die along the border. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's Is a lot of exposure. Exposure, uh, the dehydration, hypothermia, um, you know, when they get to the border, they're not fully equipped. And a lot of what they're told by the smugglers is take a gallon of water, you're going to walk a few hours, and then you're going to be fine. And you get to the border, and it's like, okay, you're walking 80 miles. Be very cautious with your gallon of water. You're right. not prepared for it. But you Some know, people just chug it right in the beginning. Oh, oh. yeah. yeah. I mean, we've seen cases where uh, aliens have gotten to the point that they're, you know, they're, they're drinking their own urine. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I mentioned the agents are out there in the same environment also. I had an agent who, uh, he had hiked all night. His, he was tracking down a group. His radio went dead. Beginning of summer, he ran out of water. Um, he starts to get disorientated. And uh, this is, uh, so this shift started at four o'clock. At about 10 in the morning, he realizes that he's just in dire straits. Dang. And his radio's dead. And so he goes out in the middle of the road writes a, a letter to his wife, takes off his uniform, folds it up, sets it down in the middle of the road, 
and he goes over and he gets under a bush because he's just expecting to die and he's looking for any shade and he's hoping that you know the uniform is going to be seen by somebody flying over and uh, when you lose communication with an agent after a certain, we, we do uh, what we call welfare checks on our agents. Right. And uh, we couldn't find them. And so we started this massive ground search and air search. And thankfully, uh, so this is like 10 o'clock, I think it was about one in the afternoon we found him. And he was, he said, I was ready to go to God. Dang. Yeah. So it's it's a dangerous place. But, you know, going back to the, the kids and the, the fact that there are 200, 500 people dying on the border. Yeah. That includes little kids trying to swim across a river. That includes little kids walking through the desert. And it, it's just, it breaks my heart. I, I can't express to you that you get a little, little bit desensitized to it because you get I'm exposed sure. to it so often. But uh, there's there just so many times when, whether it was out in the field or I'd walk into a processing station and I'd see these kids sitting there and it, it would just break my heart because I would envision my kids. Right. You know, and is it the desperation of the families to, for a better life in the U.S.? And, and we got to admit, we have the best country in the world, bar none, right? Right. But it's the desperation such that you're going to put your child through this and, and expose them to this. And it just it boggles my mind. Yeah, that feels like such an intense move because I've been to some countries where, I mean, I think I've been to most of the countries where there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of like not much structure and these, even some where there's a lot of danger and fear. Um but you still often see families uh, just moderate that the best of their abilities. And also they don't know any better a lot of times. Um, and I, yeah, I just couldn't imagine uh, that, that, that that would be such a, it would be such a, a desire, you know, especially if you had children. Yeah. Like oh. I would almost be like, let's just manage what we can here and be together than take this or or come across together you know yeah that's that's one of the things that i understand if you're gonna send your kids go with your kid particularly right now not that i'm advocating this right to to anybody but if you know the family families are being released released why don't you come with your family yeah and yeah how much of the responsibility ever falls on the parents too you know it's like um i hate to say that but i don't really it's like i would be upset as a child i think if my if there were not responsibility kind of taken by my mom, you know? Um, but, and, and I know every to, instance is different. Yeah, look at the culture too. You right. know, there's this expectation, but not for a two-year-old, a four or six-year-old. That, that yeah, makes a four-year-old can't even work at Walmart or anything. No. Yeah, and you asked about the traffic aspect. Um, two years ago, there was a, a case that came out of Yuma, Arizona, where they identified something like, uh, I think it was just under a 1,000 kids that were being trafficked or cycled through. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, here's one of the things that I think a big misconception is, what happens at the border does not stay at the border. Right. It's coming to every part of the U.S. It's here in Nashville. It's in New York City. It's in Florida. It's in Kentucky. You name it, it's going there, whether it's narcotics or illegal immigrants. And in this particular case, these kids were being trafficked. And then the family units were also part of this trafficking. And uh, so when they're getting released, uh, the usually either the mom or the dad, they were putting a, a, bra- a bracelet on them. And then what we were finding is as soon as they got to the Greyhound station or the airport, they would cut it off. Uh, but we, we were tracking them. And so we tracked them to three different locations. And in each location where well, they would arrive. So if they didn't cut it off at, at near the border, they cut it off when they got to, to, uh, to the, the state that they're in. And uh, they would get there. And then the smuggler would bring them in. And, uh, okay, now you're part of this landscaping team. You're part of this construction team. You're going to be a maid. And you're going to work off this $10,000. Wow. So, I mean, they were, they were slavery. Modern day slavery, right, right in the midst of us. Um, and the kids were part of that. And again, it gets back to some of the kids being rented. Some of those kids would get there and then they'd be flown back. Right. You know, and, and when we, when we brought that organization down, there was a female who was responsible for those kids. And 
it brought me so much joy to see her get prosecuted. Mm. Man. Oh, it's a lot. <laughs> it is. It, you know, I, again, I appreciate the opportunity. There's just so much to, that goes on with the Border Patrol. And, you know, we haven't really talked about what the men and women do, the tools they use. Uh, it, we've talked about a lot about the, the criminal aspect, what's driving it. Uh, there's so much that goes on there. And, and, and again, it doesn't stay at the border. It's just. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the part that really st- definitely starts to scare me, too. It's like, you know, um, it just seems futile. Like if we're going to spend money to have this and, you know, like we have a military that's not sitting around a lot of times, but on a lot of bases there, you know, there there's they could use probably details and, and things to do at times. I'm sure some of them would love the opportunity to even just go see the border and see what it's like. And um, and if that would help relieve you guys, it's just like, yeah, why don't we try and use our assets better? Um, it, you know, it used to feel like when I was growing up that there was a pride in like we're America and this mm. is like, you know, we stand for our borders and that they mean something. And then it feels like, that that's kind of gone away or the media at least is also like really pushed that, you know, uh, everyone has a right to be in America, this sort of thing, which, which is hard to contest because it's like, how did I get into America, you know, or how did you get, how did any of us get here? Um, but at the same time, it's like, if you don't have some system of checks and balances where like some inventory, um, you know, there used to be a program, I think, where you could sponsor a family, like a family that came in, another family would sponsor the family. And so then you had like a tour guide into America kind of. And there was like, I, I feel like at least then there's some like social accountability within like a fabric work of the society. But I don't know, man. I mean, what do you feel like is some type of a solution or something moving forward? It, it's the legal aspect. It really is. It, it needs to be revamped. Um, you know what you described about programs? Um, refugee programs are well established. So where you're sponsoring refugees as they come in in different category from an asylum seeker. Right. Um, but th- there are programs for that where it's, whether it's a church group or a particular individual that supports that refugee and then helps them assimilate and, and you know, uh, become part of America. Really, we, the key is legal migration, but it's got to be a system that's just much more effective and efficient. Um, the reason people start coming across illegally is... You may apply legally, but it's going to take you three to five years. Right. And then the categories, again, a lot of what we have are unskilled labor. Right. Um, you know, I agree with one thing that President Trump did talk about was if we're going to bring people in, why aren't we bringing in more skilled labor? You know, we're not we're not the country that we used to be 40, 50 years ago where we had a great demand for unskilled labor. Right. We have a greater demand for skilled labor, your, your technology folks, you know, stuff like that. So if we're going to do this, it has to be revamped so that it's addressing the particular types of skills that we need, but it's also done in such a manner that it's just, it's effective. It's, we live in a world where we want things now, right? right? Nobody wants to wait two or three years. And that's part of what's driving this illegal migration is if I apply legally, A, I may not qualify. B, it's going to take me forever. And then C, right now, if I come across illegally, I'm going to get released. At least that's the mindset. That's right. what we're, we're seeing on, on social media and chatter and, and debriefs that we do with the, the folks we encounter. And that's some of the stuff that's really the worst because that's how people are learning about it and getting inspired, really. Like now's the time, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're they're on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's out there. You yeah. Know, they, they, they feed this. And, and I mentioned earlier. I'm thirsty. Sm- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Smugglers <laughs> use those avenues to promote it, too. So That's so crazy, man. So I worry like a lot of times, like I, in my life, I or. Just, I, I try to. It's hard to make things fair in the world, you know. It's really tough, 
And I'm sure in your job, you guys have this real semblance of like, what's fair here, you know? Um, but then also it's like, you have the laws that you have to uphold. Um, but I start to worry like, like if a lot of people come into the country and they are allowed to be here and then eventually become citizens, then it really just kind of favors the Democratic Party to let them in because then eventually they'll probably be Democratic voters, it feels like. Which I'm not saying that like no shade against either a Democrat or a Republican or Libertarian or Paul Revere or anybody, you know, but um, or Pancho Villa, anyone, you know, <laughs> but it doesn't seem fair, kind of like it almost seems like it would behoove like a, like a more like leniency by the Democratic Party to have the border be more fluid because then eventually those um, statistically the people coming over are going to vote in their party and in their camp. Does that is that like a realistic possibility or no? You know, yes and no. It, it, so I, I think back, uh, it was 1994, Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that there was a true focus on border security. When we started to build fences, uh, started to increase manpower and invest in technology. And he was a Democrat. And he was a Democrat. Yeah. Um, you know, so but, anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. Absolutely. And, you know, and you mentioned the, the potential for a, a, a support base, i.e., will these folks eventually vote Democrat? It's possible. A lot of them getting into uh, unionized jobs that are tend to lean towards the Democratic Party. So absolutely, but uh, maybe that's too big of a jump. It, 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 well, I mean, they can go either way. But what I've seen, a great example, um, my mother immigrated here legally mm -hmm. decades ago. And when she first came across uh, and then legalized, she's a US, naturalized U.S. citizen. You know, her viewpoint on, on illegal migration is she's absolutely wrong. This is not the way to do it. Do it legally. But her, her political viewpoint went from probably more liberal towards conservative, you know, and, and, and over the span of time living here. And, and I talked to a lot of the folks that have immigrated here legally, and, and they have the same mindset. It's, it, I think it depends upon your experiences, your education, um, and, and truly it's that sense of if there's a legal process, why, not, why is it not being right. utilized? And I don't know what's driving the, the Democrats, but they, they certainly don't want to recognize that there's a crisis at the border. They don't want to recognize that their actions are, are actually impacting this and driving it. Yeah, it seems like, well, I mean, it's nice to know that anybody, so any party can help, um, no matter who's in leadership, but that, yeah, but that we do have a real, these are real issues. Oh, absolutely. You it, know? It, but it gets back to, they've got to, there are elected officials, they have a job. Yeah. They need to fix this and, and get away from right, left, right, Republican, doesn't Democrat, matter. fix This is the real problem. shit. These are real people. Yes. These are real uh, servicemen and women that are going to work and do trying to do their jobs. Like, let's at least, if we can afford to have the support for them and afford to have systems that work a little bit better, we have these systems. Yes. It's like, let's get them functioning. Back in the 60s, uh, it was the Bracero program. You mentioned about a, a programs. I was just thinking about this. It was, uh, you applied for the program and you came across and you worked in the U.S. for six months or a year, and then you went back to Mexico. Mm. A, a lot of these folks, you know, they're proud to be Mexican. They're proud to be Honduran, wherever they're coming from. Mm-hmm. But the economic opportunities aren't as great uh, in their home countries. Right. They'd prefer to come here, work for a short period of time, and go back. Right. I mean, we, we deal with a even in the U.S. We, we deal with a transitory workforce. You bring that program back, you could you may have some tremendous success in that. Now you've got a legal mechanism, which allows these people to come and work here for short durations, mm -hmm. contract work basically. 
alleviates the flow at the border of illegal migration, which then enables the agents to focus on all the bad people that are trying to come across right. and the bad crap that's coming over here. Because they're there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that's my biggest thing is I like, uh, there just has to, you have to have a system of inventory. You have to, like when a teacher calls roll call at the beginning of a class, there's a, it's like you have to know who is here. You know, you just have to. Yeah. And you have to know why and... Um, especially in a day and age when we have so much ability to keep tabs on everyone. Yeah. You know? Um, and, you know, and the one thing too is you talked about accountability and, and knowing who's coming here. One of the things, and I'd mentioned earlier, they're, they're, uh, it's not a huge flow, thankfully, but there's certainly a terrorist threat there. Yeah. Uh, and some of the folks that come across, you know, they, they, uh, there's an initial scrubbing and there may be more deeper scrubbing down the road. Some of these are bad folks that we have to keep tabs on and, or get out of our country as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I look, I, I totally agree, man. And it's nice to just hear like a lot of what's going on. And I think you did a really good job, Roy, just like sharing a lot of information and um, and just sharing it like in a comfortable way uh, where people can really just kind of hear that it's a severe thing. It is. You know, it is. And it's, it's man, you guys go through a lot. I commend you guys, man. I commend all these guys and, and ladies out there. Men and women, some of the best uh, women in law enforcement are U.S. Border Patrol. There's some as I, my wife's also in law enforcement and, and I, I, I applaud them there. I got to go, man. You promise you'll take me out there? Absolutely. You come on down. I'll take you out there. Yeah, my mom's moving back to Tucson, man. So I'll have to come on down there. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'll go get in a fist fight at this car wash by Santa Rita. <laughs> and then you and me will go out there. Uh, Roy Villarreal, thank you so much for your service and uh, and for being here today just to kind of um, just to open some of our eyes and get some you know, direct from uh, the front lines information, man. It's really helpful. Yeah. Hey, another resource too, and, and, and I say this, uh, the Border Patrol finally got into the social media realm. Mm -hmm. Look them up on Instagram, uh, Twitter, because they'll send stuff out on a regular basis uh, in regards to what's happening at the border, whether it's narcotics, terrorist ties, kids, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Because you're not always getting the full story from the media. Right. Uh, you know, you're getting little snippets. At least this way you can get a broader picture. Um, go to the source. Yeah, no, we'll share source. that. And we'll share that whenever we post about, uh, about the show. Um, it's fascinating, man. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Now I'm just floating on the breeze And I feel I'm falling like these leaves I must be cornerstone Oh, but when I reach that ground I'll share this piece of mind I found I can feel it in my bones But it's gonna take a little time for me to set that parking brake and let myself all wild shine that light on me. I'll sit and tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jonathan Kite, and welcome to Kite Club, a podcast where I'll be sharing thoughts on things like current events, stand-up stories, and seven ways to pleasure your partner. The answer may shock you. Sometimes I'll interview my friends. Sometimes I won't. And as always, I'll be joined by the voices in my head. You have... 
A lot of people are talking about Kite Club. I've been talking about Kite Club for so long, longer than anybody else. So great. Hi, sweetheart. Here's a deal. Anyone who doesn't listen to Kite Club is a dodgy bloody wanker. Jermaine. Hi, I'll take a quarter pounder with cheese and a McFlurry. Sorry, sir, but our ice cream machine is broken. I think Tom Hanks just butt-dialed me. Anyway, first rule of Kite Club is tell everyone about Kite Club. Second rule of Kite Club is tell everyone about Kite Club. Third rule, like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or watch us on YouTube, yeah? And yes, don't worry, my Brad Pitt impression will get better.